Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today, Rena Van Els from Strata Central. How are you, Rena? Good, Amanda. How are you? I am doing well. You are all decked down in red. We are recording this over Zoom video and looking fabulous as always. Tell me that you've had a fabulous week and that's why you're you're in red <laughs> celebrating. Yeah, it's actually been quite a good week. I have, haven't had any meetings, Amanda apart from a um, sort of mediation hearing. So that was in the morning. So that's pretty good. (laughs) Nice one. And mediations are still happening by phone here in New South Wales, which is kind of convenient for us, isn't it? Yeah, but apparently I think they're struggling a bit um, having them on telephone. When I was having this current session, um, the mediator who who I've actually met many times before said to me, it's a bit hard because you're trying to write agreements out and trying to talk to each party. And and this other party said to me, are you sure they can't hear what we're saying when we're having our own separate chat? And she said, I'll hang up now and ring you back. And yeah, so. wow. Yeah, so they have. So I wonder if their stats aren't looking so good when it comes to matters resolved in mediation. Exactly. And apparently they were supposed to be on Microsoft Teams, but they didn't realize that they'd be sort of in COVID for so long. So they Mm -hmm. haven't haven't had any planning done for them, unfortunately. So yeah. Mm, Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what happens towards the end of the year. I know some of my colleagues in other states, uh, particularly places like Western Australia, are amazed that we are still having hearings by phone and that our tribunal is basically closed, um, can't even file over the counter at the moment. So, um, well, we will, of course, be the first to give everybody updates on what's happening in that space here on the podcast. Rena, let me know what your challenge has been this week, aside from telephone mediations. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, this challenge, Amanda, comes from one of my strata schemes where they asked me whether a non-resident owner who doesn't live in the building is able to use the facilities of the buildings. They have a pool, they have a concierge, and she still gets all her parcels delivered to the concierge. And, yeah, she comes in and uses the pool and uses the gym. And my answer is if the apartment is rented out, which it is, then the answer is no because the rights that she has to use common property have been given to her tenant. Mm. So I just wanted to check Amanda that I was on the right track, but I thought I would raise this in my podcast with you today. Yes, I think absolutely you are on the right track. A couple of reasons there, and any lawyers listening can drop me a line and point me to any cases where this has been considered directly. But yes, where there is a lease in place, then the tenant is the one who has exclusive occupation of the lot and also is entitled to use the common property, as you say, Rena. And in my view, it is permissible for an owner's corporation to restrict non-resident owners from using those parts of the common property that they don't need to use in order to access their lot. So you can't stop an owner from accessing their lot. Obviously, they need to inspect and if they don't have an agent, they're doing that personally or they're giving any agent those rights. But it would be, in my view, a reasonable restriction on that access if an owner's corporation was to say, but you can't access the gym or the pool or use the concierge services because you don't need to do that to be able to access your lot 
to the extent that you can under your lease arrange those inspections and things like that with the tenant. So for that reason, I agree with you. What I'm interested to know here is does this building have a bylaw that sets that out? And if it doesn't, maybe that's something to think about. Yeah, no, Shaman, I haven't checked that actually. No, it's a good good suggestion. I think it would be a good way to try and formally demarcate that separation as a landlord who has given away the rights of occupation and common property use to their sea as opposed to an owner-resident who actually yeah. lives there and then is able to use all the facilities. I have definitely seen bylaws in those terms. I was just looking at ones recently, actually. Uh, so a lot of buildings have dealt with that in their bylaws. In my view, you wouldn't fall foul of any harsh, unconscionable or oppressive situations there. You might do if you were telling the owner they can't come on the property at all. Oh, um, no, but no. saying that they can't uh, use those kinds of facilities, I think, is is reasonable. And we do have tribunal cases where there have been owners who've been restricted by use of uh, FOBs and by the way that FOBs are programmed, restricted to certain parts of the property only. For yeah. example, just the level that they need to go to to get to the basement parking and just the level they need to go to to get to their lot. And then if they are residents, then the gym and the pool. So I kind of, I, I see it in the yeah. same light as those kinds of restrictions. Yeah. yeah. That's actually very true. And they do have a security system, so I might see if that can be done that way as well, actually, to mm. try that first instance because apparently this lady is quite aggressive and um, uh. what I might do is suggest that they, yeah, change the fob access areas so that she can't go to those places, yeah. Yeah. Gosh, can you imagine in a building like that? That sounds like it's got some fairly high-level services there mm. if every tenant and every owner, owner, resident or not, was using those services, the poor concierge. Exactly. That's right. And apparently <laughs> he's being screamed at when, he's, when the parcels haven't they arrive and, and she hasn't been told about them. So, oh, yeah, no. exactly. Yeah. No, we don't want that. No. Okay. Excellent. Thank you for raising that one. I'm not sure we've had that uh, that question on the podcast before, so that's a good one to cover off. Yeah. My challenge for this week actually comes from a member inside our membership community, and this was a question posted in our online forum, which is one of the most uh, popular places inside our membership, and it's a question about the process for tendering for particular work. So large projects, I think this member was thinking of, what is the process for putting together a tender document for sending that out to contractors? Say, for example, we're doing balcony upgrade works. We're putting nice new balustrades in quite an extensive project, uh, could be multiple millions of dollars in some buildings. And uh, this member asked if we could chat, Rena, about how that process works, because it can be quite a challenge for a lot of buildings and some buildings do it well, some not so well. Are you able to speak to your experience of working with buildings on these kinds of projects? And, you know, what's kind of the first thing that you might do when a building says, we want to do a major value add project like this? Yeah. So in the case, for example, of, of say, value strides, Amanda, we're actually doing one right at the moment anyway, so that's probably a good topic to talk about. We try and first of all understand, you know, what the project, what's involved in terms of is it all apartments, some apartments, what the basic concept is. And then we need to really engage an expert in that area, like an engineer or an architect or both. And basically for the strata community to articulate what their requirements are, and then usually that would have to probably go to a general meeting anyway if we're talking about adding to common property. But once that process is then accepted and, and then it's put into train, you really require those engineers, architects and professionals to then 
put out a tender document that the Strata Committee has looked at and approves to a number of different companies. So at least then everyone's quoting on the same thing. Now, that there's a cost to that. And I think sometimes mm. there are committees and owners that perhaps want to bypass that and then they want to go to three different companies and then each company will give them a different view on how the work should be done, different cost, obviously, as a result of that. And then it's really hard, I think, for lay people, such as committee members and managing agents, to really make any sense of which way is the best way to go forward mm. when you're not using someone that's trying to compare apples with apples. Now, I know that people sometimes think, oh, well, engineers, you know, or this expert or that expert, they don't really know much about how we want to do it and the document's 100 pages and why does it need to be 100 pages? But when you're talking about the quantum of work in terms of dollars and the impact that it has on a building in terms of value add, then I think doing it properly and correctly in that way is really the only way that you can actually say, okay, well, we did all our homework. You know, we, we engaged someone and even the, the process of engaging an engineer or an architect, that takes time too, because obviously mm. there's, you know, people that are much more qualified in certain areas than others. Perhaps you may ask them about other things that they've done in the past with buildings, other projects. So if you're trying to mirror that in your own building to see if they have expertise in a particular area, I find that's really helpful. And again, Amanda, we talked about this in our last podcast episode about referral. You know, you may have someone you've used before in a building where they did this particular project, you might refer them to this building, but then also they may have their own people that they know that they've worked with in other buildings themselves. I used to people Google people up. So there's a myriad of ways of engaging professionals, but I still believe that in order to be able to compare apples with apples, when you do a project, you need to have someone that provides a document, a tender document that pretty much says, this is how we want the work to be done. And then that goes out and then at least you're comparing apples with apples. And that person also should then be responsible to, you know, check the work as it's going along to make sure that they are complying with the tender or with, with mm. whatever the scope was, the scope of works in the tender, how things should be done. And in a sense, you, you need that professional oversight, I believe. And again, maybe for a foyer renovation, it may not be needed. That's mm. more cosmetic. But I think for more structural things or, you know, yeah. even windows, I think even like adding windows, I mean, it's not just a matter of adding a window. I think it's, there's a lot more to it than that. So, Oh, and the problems we see when windows are not done properly. Yeah, exactly. For sure. yeah. yeah. So the good technical documents I see, Rena, have all of those components for sure. And when we're talking about technical work like balustrades, balconies, where there's remedial work involved, maybe we're having to deal with concrete cancer and windows is another good example. Having a set of technical specifications is what I mm. see in these um, tender documents where the engineer has said, this is the work that's needed, this is the scope, and this is how it is to be carried out. These are the technical specifications. And then the tender document should contain things like uh, the conditions of the contract. So if you are ultimately the successful tenderer, then this is the form of the contract that the owners corporation will require you to sign up to. So the contractor knows exactly what they're getting into. There's no surprises down the track when their tender is accepted to say, oh, oops, uh, we didn't realize you wanted this particular type of contract. That's now going to cost extra because of these other yeah. considerations. So there is a lot of work to be done. And this is, of course, I see it too, Rena, where committees balk at this process of getting the engineer involved in the beginning and putting the tender together because they see this time and this cost of putting all of this together. 
But when we see it, particularly as a lawyer who sees it down the track, if there's a problem, when there's a problem, if you've got good, tight, tender documents, then you're much better placed as an owner's corporation to resolve those issues more quickly and with less cost. And of course, to get the project done more quickly and smoothly. Exactly. And also, man, as you said, if there are any hiccups through the way, like we had a hiccup in this particular scheme where the scaffolding wasn't allowed to be put on one on the main road, which is where it, it would have been originally installed but council have said no it has to go on this other road on the other side of the building which then impacts on the view of apartments and they're now getting less rent so again like that's why you need to have a good contract in place that if there's any of these variables that happen along the way then you're on pretty good ground in terms of your rights and um and the ability to say to the corporation well you know it was in our contract we thought we could put the scaffolding here but council have said no so yeah Mm. it's a bit of a to and froing sometimes also once the thing the project has commenced and then you're trying to negotiate with lot owners or other stakeholders that are affected by the actual works themselves Mm. so really good question there from that member inside our community what i'm hearing is some key takeaways here rena is that it's really important to have the right people on the job and i think that comes from the point of your strata manager so is your strata manager someone who like you rena is used to doing these kinds of projects or has at least um, maybe done them before knows what they don't know or knows what to look out for do you have the right engineer who's going to put the right documents together for you then the contractors who are quoting on those documents and then other experts like lawyers if it's a big project if we're talking about significant sums of money it's definitely worth getting some legal advice on the documents as a whole or at least on the contract that the uh, the contract is going to sign up to the works contract and uh, when you have that expertise on your team then you as a committee are filling in those gaps those gaps in your knowledge having maybe not done a project like that before not quite knowing what's involved and it's not always a one-size-fits-all every project's different every building's different but getting the right people involved they're going to be able to guide you in the right direction yeah that's exactly right amanda i mean with the complexity and differences in projects yeah, it's important to have like i said the man of the right team and the right professionals guiding you in that process yep For sure. Nice one. Let's shift over to your win for this week, Rena. Yeah, this is a bit of an unusual one. So in a scheme we just took over recently, there was a tenant that wanted to get the NVN connected. So they rang our office and they asked us for the keypad number to get into the actual MDF room. And I think, so we gave them the number, but they couldn't actually get in. I'm not sure what was wrong with the lock. And they actually broke the lock. The NVN contractor broke the lock. Yeah. Anyway, and then thank God we had his number because when we someone rings us, we always take, take down their number. And then we tried to ring him and he refused to come back out. And then once he realised it was our number, he refused to take the calls. Ooh. Anyway, so we, the committee members took photos of all the damage. We then obviously got the police out and we had an event number and then we submitted it through our insurance company as, as a claim. Anyway, then the um, we got onto the NBN complaints team and they've been very, very helpful and basically now they're going to cover the cost of all the damage and then once that claim is finalised with the NBN complaints department, we're going to be able to then get the excess back from our insurance policy. They've told us that already that we will get a refund of the excess we've paid because NBN is going to reimburse the insurance company for the money that's been expended in fixing that door. So yeah, so just for a change, like it's just a, a nice sort of feel-good story where someone causes damage, you then are able to, you know, go to the, to the superior of, the, of that company or entity and then and they said, yep, fine, we're going to fix it, we're sorry, 
and then get our excess back and oh it's just it's a dream <laughs> something actually worked the way it yeah, was supposed it was to. easy like it didn't go on and on forever like it the was owners like, actually got what they're entitled to yeah. <laughs> first first time round, not like i'm having to yes. uh, fight and fight and fight, and fight. So, yeah. yeah oh well look i wonder if anyone else has had a similar experience with nbn i find myself saying wherever nbn goes disaster seems <laughs> to <laughs> result i have not heard this is probably the first good news story i've heard about nbn and even then i know you're going to the next level to get yeah. a problem that nbn caused fixed exactly. they they seem to yeah they're an interesting outfit <laughs> it's, it's the first time ever man we've ever had such an outcome so mm. um, good yeah, very happy for a change good. and good <laughs> lesson there to uh pursue your rights and and get your complaint in front of the right people i think yeah exactly excellent thank you for sharing that that quick win for us Rena. My win for this week relates to a bylaw that I have been helping a building with for a little while now, and it is a problem that will be common to so many buildings. It relates to magnesite. Magnesite in our floors applied to our concrete floors in buildings of a certain age as an underlay, really, and when it gets wet, it leaches chlorides into the concrete and causes concrete cancer. So when buildings become aware of this, maybe they're aware that there is concrete cancer and that needs to be fixed, or they're aware of the potential for concrete cancer, they want to get rid of the magnesite. And some clever buildings want to do this in a systematized way. They want to make sure it's being done whenever an owner renovates their property, for example, because they don't want to cause too much disturbance. But if you are changing your carpets to hard floors, then you must get rid of the magnesite and you must let us know that that's happened or allow the owner's corporation to come in and take the opportunity to inspect the concrete while it's exposed and check for concrete cancer. Now, this building I was working with wanted a bylaw that basically set out that whole process. At what times can we come in and and check for concrete cancer? At what times do we require lot owners to facilitate the removal of magnesite when renovations are being done or maybe when the lot is changing hands or at at a convenient time to do this significant work? And as part of this bylaw drafting, the question came up, Amanda, if we as the owners corporation are legally required to deal with concrete cancer because it's part of the repair of common property and the lot owner as a result suffers some loss, uh, they're losing their flooring, for example, and they have to put new flooring in, we accept that we are responsible for paying for that. That is a, a consequential loss as a result of our need to repair the common property. However, what we don't accept is that an owner that may have a 30-year-old floor is entitled to a brand new floor after we go in and remove the magnesite and deal with the concrete if we have to. And what was suggested to me by a committee, which I thought was quite clever, is that they would offer to owners the uh, depreciated value of any lot property that was affected by the owners corporation having to go in and do this work. Mm. And they referred to uh, a particular tax ruling that set out how these values may be calculated. And they have essentially enshrined that in the terms of their bylaw. And when it was raised with me, I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to think about this problem. It's not one that I had come across before. And I wanted to bring it to the podcast to run past you, Rena. Is this something that you've come across? I put my accounting hat on. Uh, the depreciated value of a floor of that age would be zero. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So I don't know how you could, I mean, I don't know, like I haven't come across that before because normally the ones that we're involved in 
the scheme will budget for one or two floors a year, depending on how many renovations are happening in the building. And therefore they won't go in unless the person is doing a renovation. So if they're not renovating, mm-hmm. there's no need for the owners corporation to go in there and do any repairs unless, you know, it's the floor lifting, which has, hasn't happened in any recent times that I've been involved in, in particular mm. buildings that have Magnesite. Yeah. So are you saying that this, this committee is going in there into apartments where they're not renovating? Yes. The difficulty with this building, and this is something that we've had a lot of back and forth on, I've been working with the building for a while, is that they have engineering advice that this work needs to be done and it needs to be done now, which Ah. indicates to me that they've already got concrete cancer, which is a different situation to where you may have magnesite, but you don't have the concrete concrete cancer. You don't have the damage to the common property. So in my view, the mere existence of magnesite is not a failure on the part of the owner's corporation to repair and maintain common property. It is only when you have that defect, if you like, in the common property, which is the concrete cancer, that you have an obligation to go in and deal with it and therefore an obligation to cover the lot owner's consequential losses as a result of you having to do the work and certainly having to rip up a floor. I take your point, Rena, that a 25-year-old floor would have a zero value and that's the point of this committee uh, quite cleverly saying, hang on a sec, why does this particular owner get a brand new floor out of us when others have done a recent renovation and they've paid for that themselves? Yeah, and they're subsidising the people that that haven't replaced or renovated. Exactly, yeah. And then the person who has renovated and has a beautiful new floor before they realised concrete cancer was a, a thing, why should they suddenly lose their floor and have to pay to have their mm. floor put back in. The owners' corporation should pay for that. So this committee has become attuned to those two different situations. I thought, what's fair here? And looked at tax rulings about depreciated contents in properties, and it, that's it's really relevant yeah. to investors and tenanted properties. But has decided to extrapolate some of that and incorporate it into this bylaw. And we're not we're not at final terms of the bylaw yet, and there's still some back and forth about some legal issues. But I just thought that was a, a creative way of dealing with a common problem and grappling with these really hard issues that we have in strata law when it comes to repairing and maintaining common property, being responsible for lot owner losses, but to what extent our legislation is not really clear. So um, being able to confine that in a bylaw so that future committees can use it as a guide, I think is, is a good idea. Can I ask you, Amanda, on your strata committee, is there an accountant that's on that strata committee? Oh, I'm pretty sure um, <laughs> this, <laughs> this person is an accountant. Um, I mean, even though I, I agree with the concept in general principles in terms of, yeah, why should someone that doesn't do any work subsidise those that have, but I'm not really sure in terms of, I mean, like the depreciation aspect because, as I said, I mean, most things, I'm not sure what the timeline is. Is it five years or whatever it is for plants and equipment. And I don't know. I mean, I, it's been years since I actually ever looked at this aspect of tax rulings. Yes. But is it an old floor, like 25 years old, it'll be zero. Does that mean they're going to give them nothing or just give them like? Yeah, I think that's the plan. So it's a, it's a way to make you renovate in a way, man. like it's sort of forcing you yes, to. Yes, to encourage you to maintain your property. Yeah. The same applies. You can see how it would apply to bathroom renovations. And perhaps yeah. this is more common, right, in our older yeah. buildings where uh, you have a leaking waterproof membrane. If that is an original membrane, it is the responsibility of the owner's corporation to fix that leak. Yeah. But, of course, when you go in to fix a bathroom membrane, you've got to rip up the tiles, you've got to replace the tiles. So there are certain owners, because they've never touched their bathroom, get a nice new tiled at least um, shower recess at minimum paid for by the owners corporation and yeah, that's exactly. a big you know I, in my building that is a big bone of contention yeah it's a big cost 
it's a big cost. It's a lovely, nice new finish for that owner. And it's often investor owners who are interested in the bottom line, perhaps, and mm. not wanting to, they haven't renovated because they're not there enjoying it. And yeah, yeah. the return investment equation for them. Yeah, exactly. And then the owner occupiers who have done beautiful renovations and have made the place a nice place to live and taken on through bylaws, the future yeah. responsibility for their bathrooms. I can see how clever committees could be using this kind of concept of depreciated value to deal with those situations as well. It'd be very interesting to see. Yeah, definitely, man. I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it, actually. And um, once you've finalized it, maybe perhaps if you have any future events with owners in terms of how that pans out because I'd be very interested to see how someone who will get zero for their floor, how they're going to deal with the whole outcome of whether or not they're able to afford that at the time. I mean, part of it, as we know, man, some owners may have not done renovations because they're asset rich, cash poor. Like they may, they've lived in an apartment, they've had it for many years, it's worth a lot of money now, but in terms of mm. them being able to renovate, they might not be able to have the financial means to do so. Yeah. I think it's going to come down to that boundary between nothing, of course, and not not replacing a floor or, or a floor covering and something very basic that yeah. doesn't lead to an upgrade or what we would call at law betterment because yeah. owners are not entitled to betterment and that is what this committee is picking up on and saying, well, aren't we then improving their position when all we have to do is replace and, and have like for like. Very difficult, of course, very old um, fixtures and fittings to have like for like but having the most basic, the cheap floor covering or the cheap tiles, I think is the way it's going to pan out. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's probably going to be a more um, palatable way of dealing with it. Yeah, like the cheapest of the cheap, but not but not zero. <laughs> I think yeah, it, I think you'd have a bit of a battle with the zero figure. Yeah, I accept that they have to have a floor <laughs> floor yes. covering. Exactly. At some point. Yeah. They could have polished concrete, Amanda. Who knows? <laughs> and I would like to think that this issue comes up in, you know, it's the 5% of cases, you know, owners would be taking the opportunity to say, yes, I do want to renovate and look at that. The owner's corporation is going to pay for the topping and the leveling and and I've just got to fork out for the floor. I would like to think that it's the minority of cases where you end up with this fight about what kind of floor you're entitled to have. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It will be the minority. I think most people, Amanda, do want to improve their apartments when they can. And, And at a time like this, when the owner's corporation is doing all the other work for them, it's ideal time to do it yeah indeed all right well there you go all about creative ideas here on the podcast Uh, happy to hear from everyone out there what you think tell me why it can't happen (laughs) i will look forward to chatting with you again soon rena i'll send you out into another week in strata yeah catch you later amanda bye bye Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?